Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hey, Whip Smarties. Today's guest is the incredibly inspiring Arlen Hamilton. She is the only black queer woman to have built a venture capital firm from scratch. Her company is called Backstage Capital, which invests in the best founders who identify as women, people of color, or LGBTQ. She joins me today to talk about her path to success, her curiosity as a young girl when she would wear six different watches at one time so she could be in touch with many time zones, her amazing mother who truly let her be herself, both held and free, how she's changing entrepreneurship, and of course, her new book, which is out today. It's called It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage. I know. Don't you just want to clap and scream? I do. You are going to love this conversation. Arlen, thanks for coming back on. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah. So let's let's dig in. For everybody listening at home, this is an especially fun episode because you also have an incredible podcast and we just, I just... How do we even say that? You just interviewed me for your podcast, and now I'm interviewing you for mine. And so we've just been together all morning, and I love this yeah, day. Hanging out, <laughs> hanging out. Hanging out, communicating in the time of the Rona. Where um, where are you this morning? I'm in my home office in Los Angeles, in the Hollywood area. Same, And girl. I've been here for weeks and weeks and weeks, self-isolating. Well, I'm isolating with my wife. Uh, but I haven't even, I've been outside once in 40 plus days. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I I think it's been, since they sent us all home, when they, when they pushed the pause button, obviously, on production for my pilot, 
we they flew us back to LA from Toronto and the plane was almost empty. It was like totally apocalyptic and creepy and weird. And I think that was, I'd have to look at the calendar, but I think that was 27 days ago. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. And all the only places I've been are to the grocery store. And then I've gotten up at sunrise a couple mornings to take my dogs on some walks because I, I I have this new dog and she is like, hello, why aren't we going outside to play anymore? I don't understand. She's <laughs> going crazy. So those have really been my only outings and it's surreal. Yeah, it's it's no joke. But I mean, yeah. it's it's sometimes hilarious. Um, what I like about it, <laughs> if I had to find one <laughs> thing I like about it, is the Rona hair. Like everybody, well, not yours actually, because I can see you, but most people, like my hair, it's like I just gave up. I gave up. I'm just like, this is what you're going <laughs> to, this is what you're going to get. You know? But and so many people are doing that. Yeah. No, I feel that same. Also, like the Rona pedicure. What's left of the, what's left <laughs> of the last bit of nail polish that was on my toes from six weeks ago is sad. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But I, I feel like, I mean, on the subject of hair, we both have ties to Detroit and, you know, hair, the the business my best friend and I have in Detroit all revolves around hair and, and how women take care of it. And I, oh, cool. I do feel like mine is getting healthier just because I'm not messing with it. Yeah, you have a very fresh look, I have to say. I didn't want to like t- talk about your appearance because I don't think that's very appropriate, but we're talking oh. about it right now. So, I mean, yeah, it's very fresh. It's like, oh, okay. Oh, I exfoliated yeah. last night. Yeah. <laughs> your hair is shiny. Your your skin is wow. clear. It's, you know, unless Thank you have some you. Fi- crazy filter on. Yeah. No, but you have great, I mean, we're looking at each other through a Zoom. Who knows? But you also appear to have excellent <laughs> right. skin. I have so. all kinds of filters. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, yeah, hmm. I don't know how we're going to get too far into uh, skincare, but yes, I have, um. I never went through like the acne phase and most of my friends and family hate me for it. Wow. You're a lucky human. I, I got hit by that bat hard, Mm. but you know, the things, the things we go through, I think sometimes about like just the teenage years, I'm like, man, God or whatever, whatever it is, like there's a sense of humor there. We just get tortured. Yeah, I was definitely tortured. So the, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of grateful that I didn't have the acne to pile onto it. But yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was rough. Whoever, well, anyone listening who's a who's a teenager, shout out to you. You're gonna make it. It's gonna be you're okay. Gonna, you're gonna be okay. I'm so excited to get into your work and talk about backstage capital and and everything that you're doing in the world. But it's perfect that we're talking about our teen years because I always like to go back with people first. I I think about how many impressive people that I get to talk to on this. And, and I always want to know how you became the person that you are. So if we go back to childhood, were you, were you this kind of inquisitive and into systems as, as a kid? Like who, who were you at 10? Oh yeah. I was, I was, I was an odd child. I think, I think a lot of us probably think that thing that way about ourselves, mm. but at 10, at nine or ten, I was wearing six watches at the at same time. time. One yes. wrist or two? Two wrists. Three, three on and each three. Wrist. <laughs> and they were very cheap. They were the kind of bubblegum machine type of watches. I have one Velcro always, which I still want a Velcro watch. 
Yeah, I, I because and the reason I wore six watches is because I found out through we had a we had an encyclopedia set, and you know the kind that they sell door to door. We did get it, and I found out that other people in other places were had a different time than I did. Like there was nighttime in some places, mm-hmm. and it was a different time, and that blew my mind as a nine year. It was a third grade, so I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it was it blew my mind, and so I wanted to have. I wanted to be able to look at my arms and say, okay, right now in this country, it's this time. And so, mm-hmm. like, for instance, in Hawaii, which is not a country, I do know that. In Hawaii, I had in Hawaii, I had one that had like a palm tree and it was set to Hawaii time. So when mm-hmm. I looked at it, I could always be sort of connected. So I don't know if I was always into systems, but I was always, it was always about being connected to other people, even if I didn't know them. That's Mm. definitely prevalent in my entire life. And it's been what has driven every major event or major thing that I've done, uh, even Mm. in career. I love that. I I feel a version of that also. And in you saying that, it like, obviously, I I wasn't hanging with you when we were kids, unfortunately, but (laughs) that makes me feel familiar and nostalgic in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you you were born in Mississippi. How how long did you live there? Just a few weeks. I was oh, immediately wow. taken taken to Dallas. My mom had moved already moved to Texas and I, I moved to Dallas. Although I you, I don't know if this is what everybody goes through, but my mom reveals something major to me every year by accident that really? she thought I either thought I already knew or doesn't think it's a big deal. Like she'll tell me some crazy stuff, just very casually. So I only found out in my late 30s, like within the last 18 months, that I spent the first couple of years of my life in Houston, Texas. I thought I lived in Dallas right after Mississippi. My mom just casually lays this out to me during a conversation as if I should have known, and I had no idea. So yeah, I went from Jackson, Mississippi, where most of my family lives on my mom's side and my dad's before he passed. And then Moved to Houston, I guess, and then moved to Dallas. But I, I think of Dallas as my hometown. So you, that's what you remember. Absolutely. Yeah. And There's like, no memory of Houston. What? <laughs> Although, yeah, she's probably lying. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so I was about to ask what your mom was like. So obviously she is, she likes to tell stories. My mom is an author. No so, way. Yeah, so she wrote oh, her first, wow. check this out, I think you'll like this. She wrote her first novel in her 50s, back f- several years ago, when we were all broke. And she self-published it, just a few copies of it. And it was beautiful. I was like, this is incredible. 15 years go by. She doesn't do anything with it because it doesn't really take off or do anything, but she has these copies she can show to people. 15 years go by, I, I have my whole thing happen. I now have a book and a publisher. It inspires her to go back to her book and open it again. And from November, the holidays, all the way to now, she's been revamping the book and she's working with an, like a co, a co-writer. And this book is so amazing. And so to me, that's the first thing I think of her right now is that she in her seventies is writing her true first book. So she's an author. Yeah, that's the kind of person she is. She's just forever curious, 
she doesn't get set in her ways. Although, I mean, some things she's very stubborn about, of course, and we argue about her health and things like that. But mm-hmm. she is very, very open and has some amazing stories about her early 20s and 30s that she doesn't quite understand how impactful they are. For instance, she used to be the boss of uh, the supervisor for a person who was going through one of the very first sex changes that was paid for by the by a company, by any corporation. Wow. And that person was tortured at work, you know, emotionally. I don't want to be around them. I don't certainly want, don't want them using my bathroom, et cetera, et cetera. My mother saw this in in the South, growing up in the South, not having much to to look at, you know, to 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 base it on. What she saw was person needing to use the restroom and not be, you know, harassed. She gave them a key to her house, which was very her apartment, which was very close by, mm-hmm. and said, "You can use my apartment anytime during the day you need to." So you could be in peace. She tells me this story and, you know, years later. And I'm just like, do you understand how incredible and amazing that is decades ago to do that? Mm-hmm. Even to do that today would be amazing. So she's that kind of person. And um, I'm, I'm very, very much so look up to her. That is so cool. Talking about who she is, what she did at 50, what she's now doing in her 70s. Do you think that she helped sort of set that tone for you that you were going to go after the thing you were most inspired by in the moment, do it to the kind of ultimate level and and then feel free to repeat that pattern in a new kind of vertical? Because when I think about your career in music and now your career in, in finance, it's like you've gone after these different things because they've inspired you. Hmm. Yeah, I think she definitely from an early age made me understand that I could do do and be what I wanted to be. You know, mm. that that freedom was there. I don't know if I knew back then or even more recently that she would go on to do these things later in life to set that as an example, but her example was in be she would say this, you know, be better than I than I am. Do more than I ever did. Mm. And I was around people where their parents had a lot more money than we did because they had any <laughs> at all, but they had a lot more money than we did, but they seemed so trapped and their, the expectations for them to be a certain thing or to have a certain path were so laid out for them that mm-hmm. I never envied them. I'd always look at my mom and say, wow, she, she is just, again, she is a mother and she was strict and she was all these things, but there's a certain freedom that she gave in me being me and, and never making me feel bad about being me, always defending my being off kilter, having a different worldview. I mean, I was, I was, she was highly, she was highly religious. I'm an atheist. As a teenager, you tell your mom this at 13, that you don't believe in God, and this highly religious Southern black woman doesn't go off on you. It's very Mm. deep, you know. Then at 16 or 15, we go through the whole coming out situation. Uh, She comes out, she tells me that I'm gay (laughs) and doesn't, you know, instead of, um, I thought she would have to disown me because of her religion and because of her beliefs. And instead of doing that, she in fact... Uh, we'll get into a fisticuffs with someone if they talk bad about me to this day, if they talk bad about gay people. Um. So she, it, it's just like 
having that freedom to, to I said that she gave she gave me she gave me a jetpack. She didn't just give me wings. She gave me a jetpack and said, "Go." God, your mom sounds so cool. <laughs> how, She's very cool. How? I mean, I just think about what's what's hitting me in this moment is the delineation between real unconditional love and love that's rooted in fear. I've mm. seen so many parents put their fear of their children's risk taking or or you know, threatened success or difference or you know, if it's queerness or artistry or whatever, you know, makes them not the like you'll be a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer or a doctor, you know. And and the fear that something could happen to their child actually makes them put doubt into their child. It makes them make their child's life harder. And I think about what a just I'm I'm bowled over by what a gift it must have been to be so unconditionally loved for exactly mm. who you are. And when someone defends you in that unconditional way, like that does, that feels like jet fuel. Yeah, I think I think she. I don't know if something happened or if she observed it somewhere else, but I think she figured out pretty early that she needed to. She could have her fears and she could protect as much as possible, but it would. She didn't want to be her her children's bully. Mm. You know, she didn't want to be the, they had enough or we had enough to deal with out in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think something, I'd love to talk to her about it because I think something must have influenced that for her to say, it it really doesn't matter what they come home and tell me about themselves. Like my my brother had a child and children at a very young age, et cetera, et cetera. She, again, just enveloped him with love and Mm -hmm. didn't shock him into a point where they can't have a speaking relationship. They, they love each other. They speak every day. And so I think, I think there was a point where she didn't want to be the person who didn't have a relationship with her children because she was putting these fears in place. And, and I, she, she copes with a lot of anxiety as a person. So I'm not sure exactly how that happened. I would imagine it would have been a different thing. I would imagine her anxieties would have translated to her being anxious about us, but it it has been different. It, it really mm. has been. Wow. What was it? I've I've never heard, and I you know I've heard a lot of my friends coming out stories, and and we were talking <laughs> on your podcast about you know I I think of it as such a privilege that I grew up in a community that was so largely queer and full of artists and diverse in L.A. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone say to me, "Oh, my parent told me I was gay." What, what is that? What is that experience? What happens at 15? How did that go? Yeah. Well, we're in Dallas. I'm in my room, my bedroom on AOL chat, as you were, as you would have been. And the sound of that dial up modem. (laughs) (laughs) Went to the post office or the Kinko's and got your little disc. (laughs) I had my free hours. And I was on AOL chat. And of course, it was new and whatever to me. And 15, I think I was 15 going on. I don't remember when I was. I don't want to start singing. But I was in that age. And I had started talking to this girl who would go on to be my girlfriend, girlfriend, like my first girlfriend ever. And mm. she lived, it's so weird because she she was German and my wife is German. And this is, you know, years later. It's something mm. about the Germans. I don't know. So this is a German girl. And... 
we had been talking online and figuring out that we liked each other, but it wasn't like a friendship, but it was like we liked each other, you know? Mm. So we're talking. I don't, I'm trying to figure out what this is. I'm also just coming out of being in a very religious situation and getting out of that. And my mom comes into the room and she comes into the room and I cover the screen really quickly because I'm, I don't, I'm not saying, I mean, I've, I've always been pretty tame. So I've never, I'll never be, it wouldn't be, you know, charged or anything, but it was probably like, oh, you're cute. No, you're cute. Right. So I cover the screen because I'm not going to have my religious mom Mm. see this sinning going on on AOL chat. And she comes in and we've always had this kind of uh, funny back and forth banter that we've been able to do just because it's just the way we are. And she said, you don't have to cover that screen. I know everything there is to know about you. And I think I'm thinking she just means like very surface level. And I said, I was like, you don't know that I'm pregnant because I'm just being, you know, funny and silly. And she said, without a beat, she goes, what I know about you, you won't be getting pregnant anytime soon. (laughs) And I said, I said, what my heart sank. And she said it in a funny way, Mm. but it was also in a matter of fact way. And then she starts looking around my room very dramatically. She's a very dramatic person. Probably an actress never knew it, right? She's very dramatic. She's looking around. I'm like, what are you looking for? And she said, I'm looking for your Ellen DeGeneres poster. And with that, and this was the year she came out, or within weeks or months that she came out on television. So this is top of mind. So with that, I knew my mom knew I was gay. So she says that. She walks out. And she's, again, she's not angry when she says it, but she's also, what I know about my mom for the past 15 years is that you can't be gay. It's not okay to be gay. So she leaves. So I then don't go to school that day. I stay in my room. I tell my girlfriend, uh, I'm going to be kicked out of the house today and I got to figure something out. So I don't go to school. I kind of, I can still see it. I'm like sitting on my bed and I'm just like, okay, well, how can I, hmm, maybe I can go live with my aunt and because she has a gay or uh, a bisexual son. So maybe she'll understand whatever. And this is in Mississippi, you know, a different state. So my mom comes home from work hours later, and I'm prepared to be kicked out of this house. And we sit and talk, and I'm like, okay, so how how did you know? And she's like, mothers know, mothers know. And I've known for a long time. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'm sorry. And um, so where do you want me to, like, go? When do you want me to leave? And she's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) She's like, you're not going anywhere. And I'm like, what do you, but you, like, you literally it's not allowed in your religion for me to be gay. Like, how are you going to do that? Um, Because it's not, it was like a a cult. And I I will stop at that because I've been told that I can't say that about this religion without getting some sort of legal repercussions, but they're a cult. Um, And she says, no, you, she said, I've known for a while. This changes nothing. And I love you. And it is what it is, you know, and we'll, we'll figure it out together. And there were some hiccups. There are some things where she could not call my girlfriends. She always called them my friends. She couldn't bring herself to call them girlfriends for a long time because mm. it was just wasn't what she was used to. And it wasn't mean or anything, but she just couldn't do it. And then finally we did. And then a few years later, I have these T-shirts that I'm selling and they're customized and they say things like I'd go gay for and you could put a name at the end. And I started with I'd go gay for Angelina and they were a big hit. So I called my mom to tell her because even though she's cool, I don't want her to find out from someone else. And mm-hmm. I say, Mama, I have these shirts. They're called I'd Go Gay For, and you can put the word, and people are going to be wearing them, and I'm, I'm selling them. So I just want, she said, what does I'd Go Gay For mean? 
And I explained it. It just means that you think somebody's cute even though you're straight, blah, 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 blah. She said, hmm. And she just waited. And I was just like, oh, God, this is when she's going to turn into that person. She goes, make one for me that says, I go gay for Oprah. I said, okay, <laughs> all righty. So oh, my God, I, I love your mom. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I, I know what this is, life is going to be like. <laughs> I just love that. I love that. What a cool lady. Mrs. Erlene Sims, that's her name. Mm. Mm. So, oh God, I just, I feel like all warm and fuzzy thinking about <laughs> just that experience. And, and you're right, you know, the idea, I love that idea that you set a tone of, and I, I'm observing this because, you know, I'm not a parent at this point in my life, but the idea that my house will be so safe for my kids because there's bullies and things outside of these four mm. walls that, you know, they'll go yes. through. Your, the beauty of that space in your home life, I can't be overstated. What, what was the outside like? What was school like? What were you into? Did you have like a job in high school? Were, were you getting into tech or music or like what what was taking up space for you as a teenager because of your curiosity definitely had a job I started working when I was 15 mm -hmm. because we had to help pay the bills you know it was it was very there we, we moved a lot because we couldn't afford rent after a few months and we'd have to mm -hmm. move out get kicked out whatever and then but we always stayed within the same school district, which I think is just a miracle. And I'm so grateful to my mom for that because it meant that I didn't have to uproot my friendships over and over again, mm. even though I was uprooting my life, you know, my, my home. So we, so I, I did work. I worked at a pizza joint that didn't have an air conditioning system. So it was, and I worked there summer through winter. So it was bloody hot. Uh, but I, I learned a lot in that environment. I actually remember. We, you and I were talking about this earlier in a different way, but I just remember in that job, there was a guy, Randy or something like that, probably. <laughs> he was a teenager. He went to my school, blonde kid, had like a Jeep at 16, which, you know, blew my mind. And he was doing this just for kicks. He'd already admitted to me privately that he stole from his last job. And and made that job, you know, go go under because he stole so much from the movie theater that was independent. Yeah, he told me all this stuff uh, very proudly. And he was the delivery guy. And I was taking the calls and making the pizzas, okay, in this little joint. And I remember every night with the manager, the three of us, we would have to count out Randy's, like, tips and kind of do the thing and see, like, okay, Randy did $40 in tips tonight and this and this, and then you're going to get this per order amount or whatever from the boss. And I would be there because I was helping them with the cash register. And I remember this dude was making so much more money than I was. And I was, like, doing everything that needed to be done to make it possible for him to make the deliveries. And he was such a jerk. <laughs> so I remember in that moment at 15 thinking, I am going to, I know I'm going to have to work for other people, but I am going to study people as I work every single day. That's what it's, that's what's going to be the true job that I'm doing. I may mm -hmm. be here working, but my true job will be to study the owners, the boss and my peers so that I can use that later when I have my own company. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And that's when it started. So I said, okay, I, I know how to treat people and I know how not to treat them. I know about like, if I have an employee, like how much $12 really means to them, mm. you know, like that hourly rate wage or $8 or 15 It was really a training ground for me. So that was that. School, I was, uh, had a lot of like depression issues, but I also was in every group. Like I was in every, I, I could get along with every group. So like the cheerleaders loved me. This was before I knew I was gay, by the way. Cheerleaders loved me. The football team, you know, the football guys loved the, the, the theater department, uh, the nerds, the this and that. But I never, I don't know if I had a group. I, you know, I, I, I definitely had bullies and I definitely felt like I, I felt like an outsider to everyone. So I could mm. sit at any table in the lunchroom. I felt like I could sit at any table and have some sort of friend there. But I never felt like I fit into a group. Just mm. a side note, St. Vincent went to my school. She was a couple of years younger than me in high school. Annie. Yeah, we don't so know each cool. other. But, <laughs> but I remember her. Yeah, she's cool. I bet she was cool yeah. when she was young, too. She was, I remember her. I remember she was very uh, introverted. Mm. And she was, I remember she was gorgeous. I do remember that. She was very pretty. Mm. And but very introverted and didn't wear a lot of makeup and didn't do a lot of things to get attention. She was just sort of like mysterious. Mm. Well, her <laughs> music's pretty mysterious, so that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. How for cool. Sure. I wonder I'm I'm just thinking about that. Like even your observation about her and the way that you're talking about how you felt. And I realize that even now, to be honest, I, I feel that way a lot. Like there's so many people who I love and feel close to. And there's so many spaces that I can just plug into and hang. But I think being a sensitive person or or being a person who maybe has some introverted tendencies, I, I don't know which it is, it can feel hard to feel like you're all the way clicked in, you mm -hmm. know? Like... To be welcomed in a lot of spaces is so nice, but where do you really feel like you you settle all the way in? Do you feel like that's a thing that you started learning to do, or do you feel like that's a a, a check-in or, or a lesson you have to revisit over and over again in life? I don't think I fit in today. So I, I literally broke into, not literally, maybe figuratively broke into venture capital and broke into Silicon Valley and that whole yeah. world. And now I have a tribe and I feel like very close to the people that I interact with, my founders, uh, my teammates and the ecosystem at large who's paying attention. But I don't, it's, it's kind of like high school. I don't, I feel like there are people, I think what it is that I've learned recently is that I'm something that I didn't realize. I'm polarizing. I didn't know that. So I used to say, the way I used to describe it was, people either love me or hate me. And I would say that to people who I cared about, and they would be like, oh, okay, whatever. But it's because I was getting such drastic feedback from people. Either mm. they would cry around me and say, I love you, and you're so amazing. Thank you so much. Or... I would find out that they were talking, that this other person was talking crap about me or someone said that I was so terrible or they call me a name or something. Mm. Like it was very drastic all the way through different careers and different things and into venture. And it happens to this day. Mm. 
Mm. Now I'm like learning more. I spend a lot of time listening to Brene Brown. <laughs> and I'm learning more and I'm understanding, oh, I'm I'm a polarizing person. I, you know, I, I evoke are see, and that's probably why <laughs> we relate to that if you think that that's how you feel. Because mm. because you're the type of person, for instance, who will go into a place and say, I don't feel comfortable here, I don't feel safe here, I'm going to leave this environment. Mm. When most people would want for you or think that you would toe the line and just play play along, you we pr- pr- probably observing you wouldn't just imagine you would do that. But that's the kind of person you are because you have, and if, if, that's why there's a kinship. Because I feel like there's conviction. Mm-hmm. You know, I have certain things that I am willing to to live with and not. There's a conviction there. I'm okay with the consequences either way, mm-hmm. and not everybody is like that. So. When you're like that, it is hard to, I've, it's hard to, it's hard to feel comfortable completely and clicked in, as you say. You do feel that way when someone's like kicking ass and like not taking any guff. You're like, that's my people. Like that. Yep. That makes sense for me. I don't know. You know, it's fun. Do you have a lot of people in your life who are very n- non-alpha? Like, do you have a lot of people who kind of, or like, do you have a mixture? I'd say I have a mixture. I have a lot of people in my life who are very tender and heart forward. Those are the people Mm -hmm. I've cultivated. But I look at all of them like they're fucking rock stars. Like I'm so, I love my friends. I love my community so much that I, I, I just think the world of everybody. And I, I've had to learn that and it has nothing to do with them. It's my stuff that I always have a little bit of a voice that says, but maybe you're the one person they don't want to be in the room. And mm. I know that to not be true because these people are my closest friends. But there, mm. there is a thing for me, there's a little bit of like introvert anxiety where if I'm not taking care of myself, then I feel out of alignment in a lot of spaces. And similarly to you, you know, for my own set of reasons, I can be a very polarizing person. You know, I Mm. have a lot of big concerns for the world. I'm constantly analyzing data and politics and looking at the healthcare system. And those, those aren't like necessarily the most fun things for people to talk about. But I'm really lucky that I have friends who love that about me. And who also love me enough to be like, hey, maybe let's not be so serious for the next hour. And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Okay, great. We can do something else. <laughs> you know, like that, yeah. that to me signifies love, but it also is a way in which when I'm really showing up for myself, I know how to be clear and be like, oh yeah, sometimes I feel a little on the outside because I'm like, okay, but what are we supposed to be doing now? And that's just my thing yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. But I've had to learn that. Yeah. It's a process. And I've had to learn to your point, like I I always feel a little bit like an outsider and rather than letting that make me feel crazy, I've started to look at it kind of as a superpower because I'm like, oh, maybe I feel a little outside of this situation because I'm doing a really good job observing it and observing the people in it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and you're an observer yeah. and it's like, maybe that just means we're badass. Maybe so. I like that version of it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely it's definitely about observation. Mm. That's definitely being a, on this side of it. And, and it's not a higher, it's just mm. an outer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay, this is what is going on. And I've been that way since, literally since I was 
in in a kindergarten, and I this time I'm using literally correct correctly because <laughs> I would instead of on on the playground instead of playing, I would just watch and observe kids and wonder how their life was at home. <laughs> I talk mm. about this in my book. I, I'm a little. I was a little weird. I was a little weird. So mm. six years old, I'm sitting there leaning against the, the you know little thing and saying, okay. I wonder what Katie is like at home. Like, I wonder if she's okay. I wonder if she's Mm. happy. (laughs) I hope you guys are enjoying today's conversation. I just want to give a big round of thanks to all of our sponsors during this time. Obviously, things are up in the air and weird and scary. And so many people are trying to figure out what this means for their work and for their careers. And I'm really grateful that our sponsors are sticking with us right now so we can continue to bring content to you. And I'm so grateful to all of you for listening because this is how we support them and the people who work at their companies. So enjoy. I don't know about all of you, but now more than ever, I realize how important it is to try to eat right and how to manage doing that from home. Daily Harvest is making that super easy for me to do. I'm keeping my house stocked with clean food that is built on whole fruits and vegetables. Here's how it works. Daily Harvest delivers delicious clean food right to your door. Takes just a few minutes to prepare and I never have to question if what I'm eating is good for me. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to enjoy it. You don't have to overthink your meals for the week. They have options for any time of day, smoothies, soups, harvest bowls, flatbreads, and more. And I love them because they never use preservatives, added sugars, or artificial ingredients. They work directly with farms, and they freeze organic fruits and vegetables at peak ripeness to lock in all the good nutrients and taste. Plus, they're committed to minimizing their environmental impact. They're in the process of transitioning to 100% compostable, recyclable packaging, and they're over 50% of the way there already. So, if this sounds as good to you as it does to me, go to dailyharvest.com and enter the promo code PROGRESS to get $25 off your first box. That is promo code PROGRESS for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. dailyharvest.com, promo code PROGRESS. You're welcome. So, I'm curious about the bridge from this this space, you know, you you knowing from kindergarten that you are an observer, you learning to observe everyone in your working environment at the at the gig at the pizza joint. How do we get to you at 21 reaching out to it's like a Swedish pop band or something? <laughs> They're that Norwegian. You loved? Norwegian. I Sorry. Know, whoops. I know, I know. It's like Canada and you No, there's a Norwegian pop punk band called Golden Boy. And I'm working at a nine, well, nine to five. And then I did night shifts at, at d- doing data entry for a bank in their mm. lockbox. Everything about those words just makes me want to go, oh, go to sleep. I know that makes <laughs> me it cringy. Was, it was mind numbing work, but I was actually really happy to get it because it was a paycheck. Mm-hmm. But I was doing data entry for eight hours at a time. And I mean, Oof. like data, 10 key by touch data entry. So there's one hand, you just kind of, on a calculator like this for hours and and what I would I would encode checks I know it's too much information about this but I was encoding checks that were like million dollar checks 
and getting paid minimum wage mm. and then trying to figure out how do I like how do I do this day after day without going crazy started listening to music on my mini disc player thank you thank mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. and uh, that's a strong flex th- yeah so so, <laughs> <laughs> so somehow the song made it onto my mini disc player uh, by this band it was a song about an artist that I love. So I used, I, I mean, not used to, I still do love Janet Jackson and I love Pink. These are two people that I just adore mm. music wise. And this song was about Pink. It was a cute song from these guys in Norway about how much they adored Pink. So I thought, that's super cute. I love them. And then I saw they had little, you know, little videos. I thought they were so cute. So I got in touch with them and said, hey, I want to see you play live. They were like, no, uh, we live in Norway, so that's not going to work. I said, okay, if I can book you a tour in the United States, will you come here and play? And I didn't know how to book a tour. I had no idea what Avon was saying. But they said, sure, yeah, okay, if you can book a tour, sure, <laughs> we'll come out there. And they're teachers, and like, then there are, there was one of the guys who was in their army, two of them were teachers, you know, I, wow. it was just whatever. And uh, I, I learned, I taught myself how to book a tour so that I could see them play live. It's a, it's a much longer story than that, but that's that's the gist of it. <laughs> that is so cool. And and so from there, you have this whole career in the music industry. How What happens? Where do you wind up yeah. in music? Super, super behind the scenes, like not a, not a, not a linear path either. Mm-hmm. Uh, spent a lot of time without, with housing and security, a lot of time broke. I published a music magazine in between, which was one of the best parts uh, of my of my career. But I just I just um, I decided I wanted to be on the road because I I had seen Janet Jackson perform at 13 years old, and I was in the I was 13, and I was in the front row through a wonderful turn of events that happened. That's also laid out and. I said when I was thirteen, I want to I want to do this, whatever this is. I want to be around this energy as much as possible. Mm. So I'd always secretly wanted to be on the road and working for tours, big tours. So I started with these pop punkers, and they were just lovely, and we're still friends twenty years later. But I a few years went by, and I said I actually want to give this a try as a career. So I reached out to a hundred production managers and tour managers that I researched for two months online. Wow. And, individually wrote to them uh, in a way that let them know that I knew about them individually and asked for work. And uh, I did done a lot of, um, I had done a lot of indie touring singer songwriters. That's when I met Tyler Hilton and um, met uh, a bunch of people that I worked with. I never worked with Tyler, but we, we knew different people. uh, So we became friends and um, that's where I met Amy Cooney. Wow. If it, yeah, uh, we have a lot of friends in common. So fast forward a few years, I make these introductions. I get tw- out of the 100 emails that I send, I get 20 responses and I get three meetings in person and I get one gig that comes from it. And that gig took me on a path that then had me working for arena level artists over time. So it took a long time to be an overnight success in the production mm. field but and I was I was actually still just getting my feet wet and just on my way because what I wanted to, I wanted to be one of the first and only at the time black women to to tour manage 
an arena level artist. So I was working my way up from production assistant all the mm. way up. And I was halfway, two thirds of the way up. And then the venture bug came a calling. Wow. So what, what was it about venture that got in your ear? Because, you know, the music industry and the financial world are pretty far apart in terms of what they look like and I think what draws people to them. So, so how did that happen? Well, I was actually still working in, in the live music world and I had done things like work with Jason Derulo and Tony Braxton and CeeLo for a long time and uh, worked at Coachella and um, wrangled Usher and Pharrell and all these different people uh, as a talent wrangler. And um, yeah, I don't know if you know this or not, but being being in that industry doesn't really have any stability <laughs> because you can you can be on these amazing tours or these amazing gigs mm-hmm. for two months or a year, however. But it takes a long time to get in the position where you're constantly working. And even people I know who have been in it for decades, yeah. they still have to find their way and, and get get a gig. So you're 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 doing the gig. And half of your gig is finding the next gig so that you're not, there's no yeah. holes in the, in the Oh, trust process. me, I know how that feels. Our, yes. in, the, our industry is very similar. Yes. And there's, <laughs> there's no insurance. There's nothing really st- stable there. Mm-hmm. So I was, this was, I was off the road and I had already, I wasn't making yearly enough money to kind of survive. And I, I had been off and on the road. So I got to meet all these cool people and interesting people behind the scenes. And I started noticing that, just noticing from afar, observing from afar, people like Ellen, who who I'd been to her show to work on twice with an artist, but I'd never sat down and had a conversation with her, which I would love to do to this day. But people like Ellen, Troy Carter, et cetera, were making investments Mm -hmm. and Ashton Kutcher and all that. We're making investments in startups mm. in a place called Silicon Valley. And this was 2010, 2011. And I'm like, what is that? What, what, what is that? So I started learning about it, which led me to learn about startups, which led me to understand that what I had been doing for 10 years previous was I'd always, always been an entrepreneur mm. and I had been starting startups, but I just didn't know anything about unit economics and I didn't know anything about co-founders and all the things that I needed to know to be successful or to have a chance of being successful. I had just done a really great job of being a connector, being someone who drew a lot of attention. So for instance, I had a blog called Your Your Daily Lesbian Moment in my 20s. 50,000 unique views per month. Hung on every word. Wow. But couldn't make the 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 mechanic the money work, right? I was always poor. Today I know exactly what I would have done to mm. kind of turn make that work, but I didn't know it back then. So once I understood, wow, I'm an entrepreneur. This is what I am. I said, I want to start a new company. If I'm going to start a new company, I want to learn everything I possibly can about all of the players, all of the roles, everything I need to know so that when I go out looking for funding or looking for a team or et cetera, et cetera, I know the rules and they can't kind of throw me off. So I started studying venture capital because of that. And that's when I learned that more than 90% of all venture capital funding goes to straight white men. It did in 2012, and it does today, which is mm-hmm. crazy. But back when I heard that, I said, wait a minute. It was almost like I was Aaron Brockovich. I was looking up something else and stumbled across this other thing. 
that was bigger than that. And I said, oh, okay, if I don't, if I don't do something that, to change this bigger underlying issue, mm-hmm. whether or not I have a successful company won't mean much. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make it like, let me set up the foundation and, and the fundamentals of who gets funding or has some influence on that. And then I can go out and talk about starting a company. Mm-hmm. So that led me on this path of four years of exploration, knocking on doors, getting no's every single day of my life, but studying, continuing to talk to founders. So when you talk about studying the system of finance, of investing, VC culture, when you're knocking on doors, what are you asking for? What are, the, what, what are people saying no to? It, it started with me saying I wanted to start a fund. I wanted to raise a fund. I wanted you to, the investor to treat me like a, a startup founder, but my product was capital and my customers were founders. And I had a thesis that underrepresented founders were doing, already doing so much with so little. So if they had a little bit more, imagine what they could do. Mm-hmm. And that it was going, the tide was going to turn eventually on its own. But if we can get ahead of it, we would have an upside to that. If we can get ahead of that, knowing the deal flow that I had, the, the companies I was able to see. And that they weren't going to meet these companies necessarily. They weren't going to be able to, if they even if they could meet them, to understand how to, how to underwrite, so, so to speak, how to, to value them. But I could because I knew what to compare them to. Hmm. So I was saying, give me capital into this entity. I will invest that the way that I see fit. And I, my job will be to make you more money. Hmm. And just like any fund manager that I was learning about. And a lot of fund managers were going out with a thesis. And you don't know if a fund manager is any good at their job for 10 years. Because it's a long process. But they were getting funding based on a thesis, and I wanted to do that too. I was like, let me take the, that, those few million dollars that you would have put into this other thing. Let's see how it works when we give these, when we, we give different people a chance at bat. Mm-hmm. And so while they appreciated what I was doing and thought that it was a worthy cause, they thought it was just that, that it was a uh, philanthropic charity situation. Mm -hmm. A few pats on the head, a few, you're a great person, I'll see you on the other side, and then crickets, if they would respond at all. And so I, I, you know, crafted it a little bit better. I got better at understanding how to reach out to people. I used to write these emails that were just so long and ridiculous. I started (laughs) understanding that. And then, and then I started just saying, you know what, this is an opportunity for them. I'm not going to beg anybody. I'm going to continue to like develop my arsenal of information, which I think is the most important thing that I did the whole time that I didn't have any money. Mm. I'm going to continue talking to these companies and knowing and understanding what they need so that I'm always with the finger on the pulse of what's going on with my customer. And I will continue and I'll continue. And I did that for four years without getting any kind of good, good feedback. And then September 2015, I got my first yes from an investor who said that they would invest in me. And that was Susan Kimberlin, a woman angel investor in Silicon Valley who had been, you know, product manager at Salesforce and PayPal 
and didn't know did it we'd gotten to know each other for about three months she didn't know much about me but she she thought that I could do something and she wanted to see so she gave mm. me my first 50,000 and um yeah and then that that turned into more and I haven't looked back it's so amazing and I think it's really important you know to your point when you talk about music uh when we talked on your podcast earlier about what the hustle was like for me in entertainment. Everybody sees you when you get your first success. You book your first TV show, you're running your first tour, you get your first investment from Susan. And they're like, wow, look at that. You did a thing. So many people don't see the thousands of, of, you know, auditions or the multitude of PA jobs or the four years that you spent researching, hustling, learning the system before you got a yes. I, I love that you're open about that. I love that you talk to people and you're like, hey, when I was out learning this, like there there was a time where you were homeless doing this work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What? How, how did you? Yeah. How are you going? I, I read an article that I loved, you know, and you were saying that so many people take meetings at their offices and and you were out on the on the trail in the valley like walking into meetings, it was you and your backpack because you were, you know, sleeping at the airport or crashing on a couch. Like how, how do you, when you are not in the place you want to be success wise, how do you still walk into that room and make that meeting go your way? Well, it wasn't always easy. I'm never going to say that it was like, I was just, uh, you know, killing it every time. But what I would do is I would take people with me in my mind. Mm -hmm. I would take the founders who would benefit from me being successful Mm. into the room with me. Because if it could be about them and not about me internally, I can do anything. I can go for anything. Therese Tucker, who is a woman who started a company in her 50s and it's now she bootstrapped it to a billion dollar company. She told me after I got my first uh, million, you know, after I got my first investments, she told me in an interview, pride is not an asset. And she Mm. said that to me while she was answering, how did she go with her tail between her legs and ask for money for payroll for her team when she was struggling at the first few years? And she said, pride is not an asset. Doesn't do me any good. Doesn't do anybody else any good to be prideful. You do what you got to do. That's how I felt back then. It was, again, I'm not going to beg. I even wrote, we don't beg, on many things that I would look at throughout the years Mm. to remind myself, but don't beg. But I would take them with me and say, this is for them, so I can do anything. Also, even beyond that, and now, when I tell people about negotiating, The best thing I can tell you, the biggest hack I can tell you when it comes to negotiating, you probably know this straight straight from your own life, is if you don't need it, like if you tell yourself, it's okay if I don't get this, and it's truly okay if you don't win the negotiation, you have so much more power and leverage when you walk into the room. Mm. Like I I just had this yesterday. I was on the phone with someone. And we were talking about a good amount of money that I was saying they should invest in a certain thing. 
But before I got in the call, I said, let me go, let me walk through what happens if they say no. Okay, I'm fine with that. Cool. Let's go. Get on the phone, have the conversation, able to have a very clear conversation and not have any desperation or any fault lines, I guess, where I could be steady. And Mm. so I, I did a lot of that kind of play in my, in my mind. And I also just put the, the circumstances out of mind. Mm. I would not go into a meeting and think about where I had to sleep that night. Can't do both at the same time. Can't be effective by doing both. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, compartmentalize that. That's what I have to deal with later. Let's go and do this thing. Because I look at the long-term value of what I'm about to do. Mm-hmm. I love that. I'm just thinking, because you know we're getting into these high-level concepts of fundraising and venture capital. For anyone who's listening who may not know, how how is traditional venture capital working? Why was or is it working in that way? You know, you mentioned that it's crazy that 90% of venture money goes to one group of people, you know, white guys. And obviously one group of people is not going to be the most innovative. Yeah. Drive and intelligence are dispersed across the real world. And if we've seen anything, um, a lot of, a lot of women in particular are creating these big life hack companies. You know, you mentioned one a minute ago. So can, can you kind of break down the, the environment for people who, who don't know as much about it as you do? So venture, I didn't know much about venture capital. I didn't know anything about it actually 10 years ago. I I just heard about it. Like you hear about wall street or whatever. I didn't know Mm -hmm. much about it. Uh, but it's a it's a tiny sliver, and I say you know relatively tiny sliver of private equity. It's about two percent of private equity, mm. and but it's a hundred and thirty billion dollar a year uh, tiny sliver, Ooh. and the money is it's been, it's been around for about seventy seventy five years as an industry in the form that it is now, and the money is supposed to go towards the earliest stages. And then the growth stages before you become a public company or before you're acquired. So it's supposed to be this innovative fuel for massive growth and, and, and quick growth. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the key to it. It's supposed to explode your company in a good way. So anything that, um, that you, you, you use, uh, a few things that you use, like, you know, Airbnb, you know, Apple, you know, Salesforce, maybe, you know, Slack, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. Twitter, certainly Instagram, all of these companies, Facebook, they all had venture capital at some point. And in the past, all of those companies I just listed to you, with the exception of uh, maybe one, all led, all started and run by white, young white men. Mm. As a group of two or four in a garage or in an apartment or a college dorm. And usually they're between 19 and 25 when they start these big companies or these companies that don't go on to become those massive hits. Mm -hmm. And they're handed 50,000, 100,000, a million, 500,000 to to take the traction that they get or to take the potential that they have, they may have, and turn it into something. Everyone's sort of chasing, we want you to be the next Facebook. Mm. Uh, we want you to be Tesla. We want you to be this and that. So there are these examples of it. Um, and so there's a lot of money that flows there because they want you to be the hit. It's almost like saying, you know, they want to scout for 
the next big movie star, the next big mm-hmm. sports star, and they want to do that in tech, and they use this type of funding to do it. The mm-hmm. problem, has, though, is that imagine what the world was like in basketball and football before it was integrated, or before basketball was integrated, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's a very homogenous world. And so if the same types of people are being funded and are the funders, mm-hmm. it's this perpetual thing. And there's a, there are a lot of uh, immigrants who have, be, have been successful in Silicon Valley. So it's not, mm-hmm. so I said it's not all straight white men, but it, it's a lot of immigrants. So you have the PayPal mafia, which is a combination of that. And they, but it's like what, eight guys, all men who made a ton of money and then they go off and they become stewards of other people's capital and their own capital and they make even more money. So like uh, uh, Peter Till, Peter Till, um, Elon Musk is a better example. He's in the PayPal mafia. He was part of the PayPal group. He's a very intelligent guy. He made a lot of money. He goes on to make Tesla. And that's awesome. Nothing bad about that, in my opinion. The problem is he's going to share, like only a few people share in that equity and that wealth and that generational wealth. Mm. And that is just only a few. So imagine you are now a, you hear the statistics, 90% goes to straight white man. You are a gay black woman from Texas with no network in Silicon Valley. But you feel like you're on par with these guys, you feel mm-hmm. like if 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 I were given any kind of footing like they were given, I could probably do that. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, that's enough to drive you. So now, I mean, I'll cross the country. There, the last ten years, especially, um, and the last five, the last ten years, and last five years, especially across the country, there are these explosions of tech hubs, startup hubs, yeah. almost in every city you can think of. So, if you're interested at all in being part of that, you're actually they might people might try to make you feel like you've missed you've missed your chance, but we're really only just beginning. Mm. And there's so much uh, potential for people to come in, not just to start companies, but to invest in companies and be that, or to be employees of of fast-growing companies. You have to have a lot of risk tolerance uh, as both, but um, that's where some innovative things happen. And, and, you know, that people like to point out that during the last recession, some really interesting companies, and I think including Twitter, were not only born but like skyrocketed during those times. Yeah. So this is a this this next year or so there's going to be a lot of innovation that comes from it and and, and venture capital will fund a lot of that. Mm. I love that. All right, all you listeners who've been with me from the beginning know that I love our next sponsor. Third Love does bras differently. They believe that every woman deserves to feel comfortable and confident every day. And with the right kind of support, they help us feel just that. Their bras have been designed with measurements from millions of women. And their bra styles are made to fit your life. They have over 80 bra sizes. Every bra is backed by their perfect fit promise, meaning you have 60 days to wash and wear it. And if for any reason you don't love it, returns are always free. And they'll take your returned bra, wash it, and donate it to a woman in need. I, for one, didn't know if I could find my perfect bra online. How are you supposed to do that without trying it on? But they thought of everything. 
They created a Fit Finder quiz. You answer a few simple questions and you find your perfect fit in under 60 seconds. And it works. Over 15 million women have taken the quiz to date. It's fun. And like I said, it takes less than a minute to complete. These are hands down the most comfortable bras you'll ever own. The straps don't slip. They have tagless labels, which mean no itching. And like I said, they have an incredible give back model. So far, Third Love has donated over $15 million worth of bras. They know there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash WIP now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash WIP for 15% off today. As the weather is heating up and the days are getting longer, I, for one, feel so lucky to be sheltering at home here in California because my patio truly is a dream. An article wants to help make your dream patio a reality. They are one of the best furniture companies out there, guys. They've got weather-resistant dining sets, loungers, and sofas. Their outdoor furniture makes it easy to create your patio oasis just in time for the summer season. I know because I was lucky enough to work with them when I was renovating my house and they helped me make the most of my home's outdoor spaces. So keep your eyes peeled and your Instagram open for sneak peeks of articles, latest outdoor collections. They are dropping soon and they are gorgeous. Now, why do I love article and why did I choose them for my home? Well, here's the deal. They combine the curation of a boutique furniture store with all the comfort and simplicity of shopping online. They have a whole team of designers and they focus on really beautifully crafted pieces and they use quality materials, which means they're meant to last. I also love that they have a variety of aesthetics to fit any kind of home from mid-century to Scandinavian, industrial, and even bohemian. Plus, because they cut out the middleman and they sell directly to you, you save up to 30% over traditional retail prices. That's a big deal. And this week, Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. If you go to article.com slash WIP, the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash WIP to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. And it's interesting when you talk about how kind of homogenized some of these spaces are there's I've certainly heard people say well what does it matter aren't the good ideas getting funded and the the reality is no there are so many ideas there are so many people who are being missed because they aren't part of as you mentioned like the PayPal mafia they don't have access to all of this liquidity and one of the things that I think is a great highlight you can watch this incredible TED Talk, which I'm sure you've seen. Uh, this woman, Joy Bulawani, who I'm lucky enough to know now, is an incredible scientist at MIT. And she went to sign into these you know, crazy MIT computers that they're coding on. And Joy is a very dark-skinned black woman, and the computer couldn't scan her face. Because the only people who'd been using this for this facial recognition software at this MIT lab were like a bunch of white computer nerds, these dudes. And, And Joy gives this incredible TED talk about it and talks about the, the misses in 
computer technology. And that's something that a lot of people, when I, when I looked at the you know, comments on her TED Talk, people were like, I never even knew this was a thing. Hmm. I never even knew. And she said, it's not like these white dudes designed this computer to not see me. But because it was only designed by them, it only could see them. And yes. so when we think about ways to open access to all people, to take care of all people, this is why diversity of perspective and participation matters. This is why we need to have more seats at every table because that shouldn't be a thing that a scientist runs into at a computer. Uh, a woman like Joy shouldn't go to put her hands under an electric hand dryer and realize that it can't see her. That just shouldn't be a thing that happens, but it happens when only one group of people is represented in a room. They don't even know where their blind spots are. They don't even know think, what they're not solving for. Think about how that even translates for safety-wise. So that... Yep. There are autonomous vehicles who can't see black bodies. Yep. There are a lot of tech technologists who work in AI and autonomous, who could work on autonomous vehicles, mm -hmm. but they haven't been invited to that. So mm -hmm. I don't want to live in a world where a drone or a car can't see me walking across the street. No. It's <laughs> just, terrifying. It's just incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. And and when we think about the numbers again, when, when you combine, you know, I've, I've looked at some of your reporting, and, and when you combine women, people of color, and LGBTQ founders, we're looking at groups receiving less than 10% of all the venture deals. Less than 2% yes. of startup financing goes to female founders. Only 1% goes to black and Latinx founders. Oh, less than one. Less, less than way one. Way less than one. Yes. Mm. So we... We need to consider what the ramifications of that erasure do to our technologies like self-driving cars, like computer tech. All of this stuff requires the participation of people so that people are then included in the way that these technologies move forward. 100%. Why do you think, because we've been talking about this now for a couple of years, we have the stats, you know, some of these statistics I'm looking at were reported on um, by the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation in 2016. It's 2020 and everybody thinks that because we're talking about it and everybody, you know, I think about even my industry, people are like, well, Franklin Leonard started the blacklist and Lena Waithe has a company and it's like, for some reason, people see a little bit of representation or acknowledgement of the disparity, and they think that it's poof been solved. Yes. But if we look at the data, there hasn't been much progress. All these companies have pledged millions of dollars to addressing these problems and resources and, and started you know boards, but the data's not changing yet. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the reform is so slow in, in venture, at least? I think it's going to start to ratchet up because of some lagging indicators that I've mm. seen, which are certain groups. I mean, I've been saying it for years, but it's starting to happen where certain certain founders are now starting to raise very individually one-offs, real numbers, raise mm. real amounts of money, right? Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And now women are, as a group are starting to have these exits 
where they're selling their company or going public in major ways and mm. it's making a difference. And so that's happening now. It's a lagging indicator because it'll take the the limited partners who invest in funds a while to see that. It'll take them a while to then tell their the fund managers, I want more of that in my portfolio. I'll go find, why, where are they? Because I'm already hearing it. And then those fund managers will put the money, the capital to the right place. So it's a little bit of a, but I think it's going to ratchet up mm. because for so long you didn't have those examples to show. Think about Black Panther. People were, and, and Crazy Rich Asians. Mm-hmm. People were actually surprised. Like white men who make millions of dollars a year at their jobs, their job is to understand this, were actually surprised that these co- these movies did well. And then they said, make me 10 more of them. Mm. So that's what's going to happen. And for better or for worse, whether it's a good, the right thing or not, they're going, these white men who kind of hold the purse strings right now are going to see those successes and want to replicate them. So they're going to throw money where they think it should be thrown. Now the mm-hmm. question becomes, is it thrown to w- other white men who start diversity fund diversity funds? Or is it thrown to people like myself who have been doing this for nine years, mm-hmm. who have 130 investments, who've seen mm-hmm. 6,000 companies go through, who are all underrepresented founders, mm-hmm. and who do this work every day? And and we're mm-hmm. not. I'm not. I'm not sitting around waiting for them to make their decision. I'm. I'm just doing. I'm executing on it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's the representation. And then there are a lot of founders who are just going to bypass venture altogether. And already are. They're going to go into crowd equity funding. So they're mm-hmm. going to go to the crowd, to their customers, to their friends and family. And they're going to say, you can now have ownership in my company because of new Jobs uh, Jobs Act rules that the government makes it possible for you to invest $100 in my company at, mm-hmm. at scale. And they're going to bootstrap, which is what I love doing, which is you just you, you, you save money, you save on expenses, and you raise money through revenue. Mm-hmm. They're just going to bypass these things because they're not going to want to share in the upside. So I think mm-hmm. investors have a small window right now of they either get on this train or not because they're not. We're not going to sit around and wait for them. Right. I also think, and this is uh, people have argued with me, but this is true. <laughs> I've just seen it. White women kind of control a lot. You control a lot because you control white men. Now you're oppressed by white men. But you certainly have influence over them. Mm. So the fact that white women are getting more funding, they look at them as a subset of underrepresented. Because mm. white women to, as a group are getting more funding year after year. That will be followed by other su- subsets, which will be fo- you know women of color and then m- m- people of color and et cetera, et cetera, because mm. you all kind of drive that for better or worse. And you all are considered the easiest minority to, or not, not even a minority, but the easiest uh, uh, underrepresented group to, to go to first if you're a white man. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I'm going to do something for underrepresented people. That means white women because they're the next group that I understand the best mm-hmm. other than white men. It's like it moves in degrees from proximal power. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, see, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's wonderful because we know that. So you, people like you who do this with your with your work, 
you can you can help drive that and make that happen even faster. Mm-hmm. And you make sure that once you get the upside, you don't stop there. Mm-hmm. You make sure it flows elsewhere. Mm. What do you look for in terms of companies you invest in? Is it is it about the mission? It's obviously about the founders because we were talking specifically yeah. about supporting people who have been underrepresented in funding. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, this is this is a for-profit capitalistic entity. So I'm looking for companies that I feel are going to give me a rate of rate of a uh, return on investment that is uh, that beats market. You know, I also. But a lot of people come to me and say, well, I'm very passionate about this. I love passion, but you got to have passion coupled with focus. Because mm. if you have one or the other, if you have too much passion, it's just unwieldy. If you have too much focus without passion, you're not going to be in it for the long haul. Mm. And so I, I think I look for people and companies that remind me of myself and what, what we're doing. So you don't have to be a mission-driven company. You don't have to be a company that also, you also don't have to be a company that serves other underrepresented founders. Uh, I'm a shark. I'm a sharky. You know, I could easily be on the shark tank. I think you should be on it, by the way, if you haven't already. That'd be really cool. That'd be um, cool. I think it would be a guest. Uh, and and so I'm looking for companies. The way I look at it really is, because I get asked that question, it's like so hard to, to say it. It's almost like being Simon Cowell. You're just like, you're looking for that X factor. You're looking for it. I look for people to remind people who remind me of myself. I also look for companies that are doing things that it would take me 10 years or more to be able to do myself. So like the further each year, it gets a little bit more sophisticated in what I'm looking for because I learn more. I understand more. So mm-hmm. I'm looking for people. I'm looking for things that are like life changing or life. The quality of life has changed. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a healthcare product or a health product or anything like that. But it does have to be meaningful. And we have a company in our in our uh, accelerator that went through our accel- accelerator last year that is uh, able to de- die, uh, detect certain lung viruses and diseases with a smartphone. Mm. And of course, you can imagine how how thrilled we are that they exist today because of what's going on in the world. Uh, companies like that, all the way to companies that are beauty supply companies but are are thinking about things and thinking about the the supply chains in different ways or or are focused on a different group that's overlooked some way i'm just looking for something that i don't feel i could do myself that excites me i'm more mm-hmm. and more looking for companies that have to do with uh the the aging population i mean we're all the aging population but the uh people 60 plus and not just things that are about their health but about Give, giving them 20, 30 years of a very thriving life. Mm. Uh, because I think we forget about them. We dis- discount them. They, we, we even have t- commercials and TV shows where we're making fun of them being so inept in tech. I can tell you, going back to the beginning of this conversation, my mom has an Apple Watch. She can tell the Apple Watch to book her an Airbnb, get an Uber to send her there. I mean, you know, and I, I can't, I can't do it. I don't, I, my Apple watch has been sitting on my, my desk for a year because I can't get it charged. So, <laughs> so I, I just think that there's this a whole, there's a wealth uh, that's to be mined in the 60, 70 plus. Yeah. God, that's so cool. It makes me feel so inspired. And also I'm thinking about like four people I want to introduce you to who are doing cool things. <laughs> um, also, I'm like, do you mentor people? Will you be my mentor? Like, I want to learn <laughs> everything from you. You're so smart and badass and just oh, thank I'm you. so inspired. 
I I wrote my book. It's about damn time, so that I can. That was my mentor, next question. Well, I can mentor people at scale, and yes. I also have an online course where I'm mentoring people. So it's all at it's about damn time dot com. All of it, and I really, I mean, that's like really flattering to say. And and I love the full title. So the book is called "It's About Damn Time: How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage." I feel like everyone listening is just going to be slow clapping that. It's so, because <laughs> we all have felt that. And to be underestimated yes. is so frustrating. And and you have more than once taken being underestimated and turned it into a superpower. And I think it's so badass. So the, the website is itsaboutdamntime.com. Right. And would you say that that's also a place where people can can kind of jump in to learn about investing because one of the things that strikes me is I think I think about how different my life might be today if when I started working at 21 anybody had been talking to me about investing rather than at mm. you know 29 or however mm. old I was when I started yeah you know, we don't we don't yeah. teach kids in school about this so so where do you recommend people go to learn yeah, I'm definitely in the lane of uh, angel investing in that kind of group, like venture, but, but mm. angel investing. So I wouldn't be the person to come to to tell you how to invest in a in a public company, stocks and bonds and all that. I wouldn't right. be able to, to do that. But when it comes to what's going to happen in the next 10 years, absolutely. It's about mm. damn time is where you can find everything because I've had podcasts for several years that go into it. The book is, is a primer for anybody who wants to be an investor. Mm. If you're someone who makes $200,000 a year or more, or you have a million dollars or more in assets uh, in your family that doesn't include your home, you can, you are an, considered an accredited investor in the United States. And so wow. you can make, you can make 5,000, 10,000, et cetera, dollar investments into startups and impart and, and your wisdom on those startups who need you as much as you may need them. And if you're not that, if you don't make that, you are an mm. unaccredited investor, but there are many crowdfunding, crowd equity funding sites you can go to and mm. become an investor today, like doing a kind of like a Kickstarter, but for for ownership in companies rather than for like an exchange of goods. Mm. So I talk about all kinds of stuff like that um, on the site and many ways. There's so much free stuff. Like I do my podcast is free, obviously. <laughs> my book is not free, but it's almost free because... It's like a book, which I think is great. It's very accessible. Yeah. I that's how I learned. I just read books like constantly. Mm. Also, YouTube is really helpful. But yeah, I try to I try to give as much information as I can online. I love that. When's the book out? May fifth. May fifth. May fifth. We're so close. We're so close. Oh, so I can't close. wait. Yeah, I can't either. <laughs> um, not not only did it did I start writing it a year and a half ago, but I started promoting it my birthday which was the end of October so it feels mm. like it's just been this slow ah and then and then I had a six-month book tour lined up that went away in 72 hours yeah and so it's just like everything has changed but the funny thing is or the interesting thing to me is the book the whole book is about the last eight or so years and even before that of how I did exactly turned being underestimated into an advantage and it was about bootstrapping. It was about doing things, making the impossible happen under crazy odds. Mm -hmm. And now I have a better, I have a different kind of vibe. You know, I have like assistants and I have all these things booked for me and this and that. And then coronavirus said, uh-uh, 
No, mm-hmm. you're going back to your entrepreneur spirit today. And so the way that I'm rolling out this book, I, I get to like flex those muscles in a, in a way that I haven't been able to in several years. Now, don't get me wrong. I have three different companies, so I definitely mm-hmm. flex that muscle all day long. But this is like so indie to me. This takes me back to when I used to like package T-shirts from my living room and send them out as I sold them and, you know, write, hand write and, and take it to the post office. This is how I feel about this book because every single person who talks to me about the book means something. Every mm. single person who gets something from the book means something. And I just, I just can't wait for it to be out. I'm so excited. I'm so excited too. Mm. <laughs> it, um, it feels like a, such a fitting time to ask this question, which is my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes on the show. Everything is new now. And the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious what in this moment, be it this shift or or something personal, what, what feels like a work in progress to you right now? Hmm. I mean, me. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure everybody <laughs> says that. But um, I... I truly feel like I'm in a place right now where I I don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And for the last five years or so, or four years or so, I knew what I was. I knew what I I could. I knew I'm a venture capitalist. I have these mm. funds. I do this thing. I feel like there's a next play for me that perhaps means that I reach more people. And can be an example to more people. Something is bubbling. And what's in progress is not only the thing that happens next, but how I react to it and how I behave within it mm. and the impact that it might have. And it feels very much so like I'm on the brink of something. And, and, um, I'm, I'm excited to, it reminds me this period of my life, the last few weeks remind me with the book coming out and with, all of the success of a lot of the companies in our portfolio bubbling under the surface. It reminds me of September 15, 2015, when Susan Kimberlin gave me uh, a yes to starting the fund. Yeah. It feels like, wow, what, what's the next step going to look like? That bubbling of potential, that feels nice. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there's an optimism there. Even in these, in these incredibly strange times, yeah. I feel it for myself and I feel it for others. I feel it for other people. Well, I love that. That's a good thing to hold on to. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is so fun. <laughs> I've loved thank spending you. my day with you. Yeah, I feel like I think we live together now. It feels Great. like you're just in the other room. <laughs> I love it. Be like, hey, from the kitchen. Yes, yes. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I, I yeah. love the work that you're doing. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.